2: Wellness, what on earth it doesn't mean. And why would we need to unpack it? With over 58 million hashtags on Instagram, the topic has really never been more prominent. But, and there is a but here, three in five of us feel that wellness is incredibly confusing. We want to feel healthier, we want to feel happier, but we have no idea what's clickbait, And what's genuinely health-enhancing? Who's an expert? And who's peddling absolute nonsense? And look, I am right here with you on this. At times, I've also found this world really hard to navigate. So welcome to Wellness Unpacked, our new podcast hosted by me, Ella Mills, author, entrepreneur, and founder of Deliciously Ella. This series aims to do just as it states, Unpack the world of wellness with expert guests. These guests will be sharing with me and with you their three pieces of advice for a better life to feel healthier and happier. This is a show and a conversation that's about progress. It is not about perfection. It's about helping you make small, simple, sustainable changes. And within that, I'm going to be testing out a different wellness trend every single week. Intermittent fasting, celery juice, collagen, ketogenic diets, CBD, you name it, I'll try it. I'll then unpick the trend, separating fact from fad, with my friend and NHS GP, Dr. Gemma Newman. And together we'll be equipping you with the tools that can genuinely make a difference to your life and well-being, and equally helping you potentially put to one side the trends that may make a little bit less different. So are you ready for episode seven? Our seventh guest on Wellness Unpacked is Sarah Stein-Lebrano, who works at the School of Life. And if you haven't come across the School of Life before, they're a brilliant learning resource. So they publish books, host courses, do events on all sorts of different self-development topics, from self-awareness to building confidence, improving relationships, your career and of course today's topic, failure, something that Sarah and I are going to be discussing in depth. In that conversation we're also going to be looking at this idea of leaning into psychological discomfort. So you know that horrible feeling where you're waiting on feedback from something or you've got to have a difficult conversation or there's something you just know you've got to do but you're very nervous about it. We are going to be equipping you with some tools to better manage those feelings. I'm really, really looking forward to you listening to this one. So Sarah, the first question I really want to ask you is what does wellness mean to you? How do you define that word?
1: Yeah, well, I work at the School of Life and we use a very specific kind of Uh, idea for wellness, which is this Greek word eudaimonia, or like human flourishing is sometimes how it's translated. And the idea really is that it's not so much about, uh, you know, the exact condition of your body, although the Greeks were very interested in fitness and, you know, eating right things and whatever. Um, But it's about the condition of your life as a whole, whether you could look back on it and be proud of it, whether you could find meaning in it. Um, There's a sort of lovely line from, I think, Aristotle uh, that says, you know, count no man happy until he is dead. And what they really meant by this potentially is that um, you don't really know what the meaning of your life is until long after it's passed. So when we work on things at the School of Life, when we write our books, when we create our videos and so on we're thinking about how to improve people's wellness in this specific sense which is did you live a life that was really meaningful Um, did you have relationships that actually mattered to you did you do some kind of work in the world that made it a better place are you happy with the choices you've made i've heard other people talk about this as your sort of um your obituary life instead of your cv life it's not really about achievement that's a big theme for us
2: I absolutely love that way of looking at it because I think sometimes when people think about wellness, they think about a very closed definition of it and about exactly what you ate for breakfast, about a workout you may or may not do and so on and so forth. And it can feel, I think, quite depressing sometimes at times and not necessarily as kind of meaningful in a wider sense of of the word and and I think that's incredibly exciting and I know your three pieces of advice that you've shared in terms of um, trying to improve everybody's year really tap into that and I wondered if we could start with your first piece of advice the thing you feel everybody listening could benefit from knowing to truly improve their health and their well-being.
1: Yeah um Well this one is a bit spicy but we have a lot of things at the School of Life on the concept of failure and I know that um, a lot of discourse in the wellness space about failure is essentially that you should be tough and you should experience failures and you're going to learn and grow from them and then you're going to succeed. And failures are like these little uh, stepping stones on the path to success. And um, maybe that's okay if you're learning, I don't know, French or something. But we think that's a really bad way of thinking about failures in general, because we think that a lot of things people see in their lives as failure are, um, are, are really just a profound part of the human condition. You know, that very bad things happen to people all the time for unfair reasons, and if we see failures as only things that we should somehow bust through on the path to success, we won't be able to properly mourn and grieve and identify what it really means to be alive in this world. Um, So you know, people have relationships that were beautiful and then fail. They uh, never managed to achieve a very beautiful dream that they had about doing this or that activity in life that brings them meaning. Um, You know, things go catastrophically wrong all the time, you only have to look in the news see that the world is full of things we might identify as failures. And we want to resuscitate this idea that failure is simply something that happens because of misfortune a lot of the time. And uh, it doesn't mean, of course, there aren't, you know, causes of inequality that we should absolutely address, but that also human life is simply unfair and sometimes even what you might call tragic. And we think it's really important to be able to look at our lives as a whole and accept, firstly, that things are going to happen to us that we fail in, um, that we may never, you know turn into a tool to success later they're simply there to be grieved and understood and mourned and secondly that also there's lots of areas of sort of mediocrity in our lives that we should welcome and embrace and that it's it's fine to be mediocre in lots of areas as well so that the very few things that we manage to succeed at are really choices and that we appreciate just how fortunate we are when they happen.
2: There's so much to unpack from that, but I want to dive in if it's okay to start with by Mm -hmm. defining how you see success, because I think it's such an interesting word in this unpacking of our lives and our happiness and our mental well-being, I think in particular, and the relationship that success has with our happiness and therefore our well-being, but how, I guess, if we could start you in particular define success.
1: Yeah, I mean... The way that I often talk about it when I'm talking to people at the School of Life about failure and success is that we point out that it just means to sort of excel in a particular area. Right. So you could be a success at, uh, you know, cooking or a success at uh, real estate investment or a success at looking at clouds. It could be any anything, really anything. Of course, we've now, in our particular capitalist society, uh, tend to talk about successful people as the ones with very shiny degrees and very large bank accounts and very, uh, you know, important positions within a large corporation or something. But but actually, you can be successful at looking at clouds and really appreciating clouds. You can be successful at being an aunt or uncle or something like this. Um, and, and so then that puts the pressure, gently, back on us as individuals to think about what kinds of success we actually want. And this tends to be the exercise we ask people to do is to say, okay, what do you mean successful? Successful at what? Um, and the important thing to point out about that is that these are not all compatible, right? You may be very, very bad at a sort of Zen Buddhist calm by necessity if you are successful at real estate investment. These things may not go together very well.
2: Interesting. And how does accepting where success sits within your life translate into feeling like you've got more meaning, you've got more happiness, you're living the life that you want?
1: I think for me, something that's been a big challenge the last few years is that I... Of course I'm saying all of this but you know I'm a complete hypocrite in lots of ways. I I did the Chinese degrees and the well not enormous bank account but you know the the perfectly sensible for London living bank account and um I and I think I really struggled to know when to get off of that path and figure out what it was I wanted to do. And right now I'm in the process of writing my second book proposal because the first one didn't go anywhere. And I'm realizing that the thing I really want like really want is I want Someone to be reading the book who gets it. There's a beautiful line from a group of writers called the Invisible Committee, where they say, there's no point in writing a book unless it's to a friend. And I think I'm looking for that friend. So I guess my point here is, I think that I'm perfectly fine at what we call conventional success. But what I really want, what I actually need to focus on in success is this idea of the friend, the friend at the other end of the book. And that switches really hard because people will ask you to do a thousand things just to be, you know, conventionally successful. And no one else is going to prioritize me finding that friend who's going to read my book as much as I will. So I think it's actually much harder to find your own definition of success in some ways.
2: Absolutely. And I think that to me loops back to something you said a minute ago, which I think was very interesting, was that do we need to gently put the Emphasis on finding that as individuals versus other people finding it for us. Because I think it's very interesting when you say, accept failure, it's part of life. It gives people permission almost to stop chasing and running to your point about things that may not actually truly make them happy, at which point, to some degree, what's the point in it? But then within that, when does the emphasis? then go back onto us. It's okay to let go of that, but then equally trying to find those things that are meaningful sit within you as opposed to, I think there is a slight tendency in our culture today to want things to come to us versus us to go to them.
1: That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that last bit. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's certainly possible. I think, Also, in a way, it's about relinquishing ambitions. I think our society is very good at telling us, like, you should have lots of ambitions and you should never let them go. And tenacity is the only real virtue. And tenacity is a virtue. Uh, Fortitude is a virtue, a very old-fashioned one that I like. But um, I also think it's virtuous to relinquish ambitions. I think we have to, I can't imagine how you could pursue one or two really well without relinquishing a whole bunch of other ones. And I don't think that we have an equally robust cultural sense of what it means to say, this is a valuable ambition, and I have let it go. I have failed at it. And that's that. Um, Which, of course, doesn't make it easy, regardless. But it would be nice if we were better at it as a whole, collectively.
2: Absolutely. I think that is an incredibly powerful piece of advice. And I want to ask you on that. Do you feel within that acceptance? It's about, again, this pressure that I think a lot of people feel, but I think in particular women feel Mm. to do it all, to be all things to all people all the time. And certainly in my experience, that is impossible and you've got to relinquish elements of that. You cannot be everything. But I do think there is this modern myth that you can be, you can have a massive career and a massive social life and be a really hands-on parent and so on and so forth. And and actually there just truly aren't enough hours of the day.
1: Absolutely. I think it is worse for women. I mean, I'm 31 years old and Every question I get is either like, well, are you going to have the family or are you going to have the career or how will you juggle them? Or, you know, I mean, there's lots to say about feminism here and how we should expect the same trade-offs for men. But I also think that it's just something that we put on ourselves as well. Um, And if we could relinquish, you know, I think we should also just create a script where it's okay to be like sometimes also a mediocre parent. I think that's really important. And we have a phrase that we like to use at the School of Life from the psychologist Donald Winnicott which is he used to use the term good enough mother, which is very telling. And we use the term good enough parents. But we really think that people should focus on good enough parenting and actually good enough everything else as well. That's really the idea of mediocrity. Like You're doing okay, and okay is fine. Yes, of course, the children could have like an amazing Montessori set that you built from wood or whatever, but actually, the main important thing is they ate something and went to bed, right? And that when the kids grow up, that's what they're going to remember, that mom was there, not that mom you know, did some cool art project or whatever. Um, so I think it's much harder for women culturally still, especially in many places, uh, to say, like, I'm just a good enough mother. That's it. I'm not perfect, not amazing, not there all the time doing other things. Uh, but but I can only imagine getting through it like that in the future would it happened to me.
2: <laughs> I absolutely love it. I think it's my mother-in-law actually was um, kickstarted a project in the UK called Sure Start, um, which yes. unfortunately Amazing. isn't quite living and breathing as it used to be. And that was the whole premise of it was yeah. about empowering people to be good enough because um, yeah. that is actually more than enough. But I think we... Imagine this Instagram perfect version, which is, um, yes, close to impossible a lot of the time. And there was a stat actually, um, which I wanted to pick up on, which was that about 20% of us feel the pressure to be extraordinary, which I think is really quite something. So no longer is great or brilliant enough, but actually we have to be extraordinary, have to be the best of the best, better than everybody else. I mean, this almost seems insane at this point.
1: Totally. And I think uh, we have a lovely little line in one of our books, something like, the sign of a healthy child, someone that you've raised well, is that they have no desire to be famous. And (laughs) I think that's so true. Uh, You know, like, why do we have to be the best? Isn't that just about beating other people? Can't we just be pretty good and have made a nice impact in at least one or two other people's lives? I think it's a really deranged thing. And I think, um, you know, we have to really reflect on this and think, first of all, I do think it's driven very much... By every bit of capitalism from the way we're hired to advertising, whatever. But I also think it's worth saying that um, you know, we we only we can redefine that for ourselves still. And 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 this is part of the whole joy of mediocrity thing, is like uh you're not necessarily that much better off if you're the best of the certain thing, right? And 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 stopping trying to be the best might be the first step before you can even really think about what else you want to do, what you actually want to do for its own sake. And in terms of practical applications
2: of all of this people listening saying yes that's exactly right I need to let go of a lot of the pressure that I put on myself Mm -hmm. I don't need to be the best of the best of the best I'm doing a good job that's enough and it's okay I don't need to excel in absolutely everything i do we did a podcast last year um with a gentleman called oliver berkman and he yeah. really something really stuck with me was he was talking about the fact that now even in our hobbies we want to be the best so you take up yoga let's say and you go and you do a few your classes and you're like this is great this is time out i feel calm brilliant and then you start looking around the class and saying They can stand on their head. They can do this. I've got to do that too. And suddenly your hobby, which was meant to be the hour of peace and calm and quiet, where who cares how good or not good, not that those are really terms you can bring to the practice if you look at it properly as such, but if we apply this this lens to it and suddenly you need to be the best in the room at that and you start pottery because it's calming but now you've got to make a vase that's good enough to give to your granny yeah and it's almost like this pressure is then kind of pouring into every aspect of our lives and I'm just thinking in terms of people listening wanting to make practical changes in their life where do you go about embracing the fact that it's okay not to be the best at everything
1: yeah I think that's a great point I think um well, here's here are things I do. I mean, right? We we can only begin with us. I think, firstly, that I like to do my hobbies badly. I really, I really do. I don't actually understand how to knit baby sweaters, and I've never figured it out. I just knit all the little pieces, and then I stitch them together. And I'm pretty sure that they're pretty impossible to put on an actual child. But my friends are very polite. So when I give them the baby sort of, oh, yes, thank you, and they take a little picture of the baby who's, you know, uh, usually either far too large or far too small for it, and and probably they put it away for the rest of time. But, but I'm okay with this. I've decided, you know, this is fine. I'm not good at this, and that's fine. Um, and I think similarly, you know, um, I've started also... I used to post, like, during the pandemic, all the things I would cook. i say, oh, look how beautiful they are. And recently I've started posting all the things that have gone horribly wrong with my baking because our oven doesn't actually work right and I'm imprecise and fussy and just things go terribly wrong. Um, so I think, I think there's something about really enjoying the fact that, like, in most areas of life, we can screw up a lot. And it's kind of funny. So I think that's part of it. And I think the other part of it is realistically to just genuinely look at, uh, if you're a London person, your calendar and take things out. Be like, I'm not doing this. I'm not showing up to this random networking event. It's not happening. So that the things that are in the diary are like the things you really want to be there. Um, And I don't think either of these things are actually that easy as much as I'm saying that they're enjoyable. They are enjoyable, but they're not easy.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. Do you know what is so interesting? My daughter's about to have her third birthday. And because of COVID, it's the first year at nursery where, you know, everyone's having birthday parties and everything. And I've been feeling really guilty because Mm. that was something where I just had to say to myself, really trying to be a hands-on mum, really trying to do my work, which I love and it gives me a huge amount of meaning. And I know there's some things with my children that I just can't do. And I almost felt like someone gave me permission yesterday because they were saying the one thing I promised myself I would never do was put stress on myself about throwing the world's best birthday party for a toddler. And it was (laughs) so funny because it's something I've been feeling so guilty about. And it's just it's those little things, isn't it? Just letting them go Mm -hmm. and realizing like actually your time and attention is more than enough often in lots of circumstances and you don't have to go above and beyond and above and beyond again. And that doesn't necessarily actually mean as much to people. Anyway, that You're was... You're
1: doing good enough parenting. Exactly. Yeah. Which
2: I think is probably more than sometimes we realise it is. And sometimes I wonder with these things, when we put pressure on ourselves, to be more than good enough? Do we sometimes actually become worse because we've, yeah. we're feeling this intense pressure that can make us maybe less relaxed and less present which I, is something I've certainly been thinking about a lot Absolutely. recently and I feel that leads on quite nicely to your second piece of advice which is putting time into relationship growing skills and I think yeah it's really interesting and something people listening might have come across before but they're actually your relationships are the number one predictor for your happiness not again what we've just been talking about kind of financial success or career success these more Western ideals of success.
1: Yeah, that's right. So I do lots and lots of research in psychology. My PhD is partially in psychology. I'm working through a PhD slowly and imperfectly. And something that comes up again and again and again and again in the sort of empirical literature uh, is just that after a certain point, of course, you know, poverty really, really destroys people's lives. But once you're, you know, somewhere in the middle class, um, there's a point where more money doesn't add very much to your happiness. and. The better predictor at that point of your overall life satisfaction and well-being across a number of areas, even your physical health, I think, is the quality of your relationships with other human beings. Uh, In some studies, it's like whether men have a good relationship with their mothers. In some, it's the primary relationship in your life, like usually a romantic relationship. Um, In others, it's about how many friends you have. But essentially, one of the absolute best predictors of whether we're going to have had a happy and meaningful life in this big sense of wellness is whether we're good at having relationships with other people. And something that we work at at the School of Life, but also something that I've tried to live out in my own personal life as best I can, is that these are not these don't happen by fate. Unlike a lot of other things, unlike a lot of uh, things I've talked about in the past with you know failure and uh, uh, achievement, this is something that we can to a certain degree control. And by that I mean steer and importantly improve in ourselves. Um, that I think a lot of people look at others and they say, oh well that one's sociable or that one's really lucky and just happens to have a couple of really close friends. And we think that's absolutely the wrong way to look at it. That friendship. Uh, and, and cultivating strong relationships with other people is a matter of specific, concrete, learnable skills. I could take you on like a long trajectory of why I think we've got this idea of wrong in our culture and we, we think it's sort of like just happens to us, but I'm not going to bore you with that right this moment. But I do think that it's really important to go back and stop having an overly romantic view of sort of the right friendships and relationships just happening to us and instead to think about it as a set of skills that we can cultivate. Um, because that's the best news that we've got. The most meaningful thing in your life that you could have is something that you can learn over time to get better at having. So we actually teach these skills at the School of Life. We have classes on communication and on calm and on resilience and on, uh, you know, playfulness and, and all of the skills that help us build um, those kinds of connections with other people. And I have found this immensely helpful in my own life. Um, not only the actual material of the School of Life, but just more generally, you know, I was a very unpopular kid. I was shy. I was awkward. I'm definitely not the most neurotypical person anyone's ever met. I had a couple of friends in high school, um, but they were also shy nerds. And When I went to university, I was far away from my parents for the first time, and I was allowed to go places because I didn't live in an American suburb without a car. And suddenly, I had options, but I had no expertise in how to build friendships. And the only really good news for me at that point was that everyone else was more or less starting out in the same place, and I just worked at it. It was not that I was a natural. I wasn't a natural anything, but I just worked at okay following up with people when I met them, and you know trying to remember things about their lives and asking them about it and learning to really listen and not immediately just say back something that was on my mind. And um, and I think that the fact that I now have lots and lots of strong friendships and relationships is skill. It's not talent. Uh, it's not charisma. It's in, it's carried over into other areas of my life where I can do public speaking. But the reality is, it's something that I fought for for years. And I think I also was forced to learn because I kept moving. So I moved to Europe after graduation. And I I lived in London, which is a lonely, lonely place for a small American, let me tell you. Um, British people are not always the friendliest. And and I just really had to learn to make friends. But now that I have those skills, they have saved me so many times. And so I just really want to emphasize that I think that the, the biggest joy in our lives is our relationships with other people. And this is one thing that we can get better at. That we can really, if we decide now, I'm going to get better at my relationships with other human beings and we work on it, we can do that. Like you might never get another promotion in your life. You might get fired. The economy is in shreds right now. Uh, all kinds of other things are going to go wrong. We're not really in control of our health past a certain point, although it's really good to work on it. But our relationships with other people, we can do that now and we can learn to get better at it.
2: So many questions <laughs> on this one, which I love. Um And the first actually is in terms of that, what have you found are the kind of key skills that you can work on that make you a better friend and that add that level of depth and richness Mm -hmm. to create those true friendships as opposed to potentially the more kind of transactional friendships?
1: I think the first thing is friendship is almost like an inverted world from the world of achievement, if it's a meaningful friendship. Because if you think about the few people you might really, really love in your life, you don't love them because of their achievements. Or if you do, I don't know, maybe we need to like do some reflection. Uh, You know, the people I really love, I almost love in part because of the things that have gone wrong in their life and the way that they've dealt with them with humor and grace and resilience and so on. And And it turns out, basically, that the reason that we like and bond with our friends is because they're being vulnerable with us. And they're telling us what's actually difficult in their life, what they're worried about, what they're anxious about, what they're embarrassed about. And so I often think when you look at parties, and we say this also at the School of Life, that, you know, people are doing everything backwards for making friends. They go in and they say, look at my wonderful achievements and my children are so impressive. And yes, at work, this thing's happening. It's so stressful and busy. What they really mean is like, look at me. I'm so impressive. And that's not at all how we make friends. How we make friends is to say, you know, I don't know anyone else here. Do you? It's quite weird. What's that guy talking about? I, I'm honestly ignorant. And then the person sees you've got a bit of vulnerability. Um, I think the other. So so I think there's something about starting with vulnerability. Um, and I also think there's something about skipping a lot of the in, intermediate talk that people think is polite. I mean, obviously, you shouldn't immediately ask somebody about their sex life, maybe, uh, unless you're in the right kind of party. But, uh, you know, y- you want to start with something that's a bit personal, that gives them at least the opportunity to share with you if they really want to. And um, yeah, I wish I had done this more in my first few years at London, because it took a long time to make friends. But to say something like, what do you hate most about your colleagues? Like That's kind of an interesting question, right? Right off the bat. And then you can get into, you know, sex lives by the fourth drink, or whatever. But
2: <laughs> I love that. And in terms of building on that. So you've got vulnerability and sort of skipping the small talk, but in terms of then creating more depth and thinking about the, let's be honest, slightly strange world we live in today where we're so connected in lots of ways. Most of us have all kinds of social media, WhatsApp platforms, etc. So we kind of at the touch of a button connected to our friends, except for in many ways, it feels like we're not connected at all. And it struck me recently, actually, because a friend of mine, a very close friend, doesn't really use social media. And she was saying how much that's added to her friendship, because instead of seeing a photo of the fact that I went to stay with my mum this weekend or that my daughter did this that weekend she asks me about it. And I now she's godmother to one of my children. And I now deliberately send her photos and will tell her about what may her goddaughter has done because I assume no knowledge. And I think it adds a lot of richness. But I just wondered from your experience in terms of building these friendships, where the online world fits with the offline?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I kind of want to do her technique now. Um, I think that's really lovely. And I guess what it, points to for me is that it's it's the intentionality and it's sort of the one-to-one-ness of connections that makes them rich right that's kind of the tricky thing with social media it's one to almost an unlimited number of humans and I probably should take her technique but what I do that's not as good but still possibly um, helpful for those of us who can't quite quit social media is I actually just have a reminder in my diary to message all my friends and when that reminder comes up I message them all. <laughs> and I, I understand that some people might say, like, that's really mechanical and robotic and caring and uh, cruel. But I, to me, some, because something is artificial doesn't make it less important. You know, um, insulation in houses is artificial, and I'm very grateful for it. And, uh, you know, birthdays are a social construct, and we should definitely do them because they're fantastic. And um, so, yeah, I think there's lots of ways to engineer a more meaningful connection. Um, I should quit social media. But until then, I I just schedule this one-to-one checking in. And I think also maybe just trying to ask questions about what isn't posted. You know, like, did you manage to have a meaningful conversation with your mum? Or, you know, whatever the question is that goes beyond that first layer that we actually share with everyone uh, can be helpful, hopefully.
2: It's a really nice way of thinking about it, about skipping. That layer that everybody else sees yeah. and trying to get into something yeah. that's quickly more meaningful. And it's really interesting looking at your three pieces of advice because it feels like number one is accepting almost, that, you know, the failure happens and that's OK and we don't need to be the best. And it's semi in our control and semi out of our control. The second one, obviously, as you really eloquently said, is the fact that actually our happiness is so predicated on our relationships and that is completely within our control, Mm -hmm. within reason, and we can really invest in that. But then the third one to me of tolerating discomfort and leaning into ambiguity almost feels like it's the essence of it is completely accepting that you can't really control anything that happens in life. And so accept that and, um, and move forward with it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this is the core of the academic research that I do. I'm very slowly and perfectly finishing my PhD at Oxford. And one of the things I'm looking at is called cognitive dissonance, um, which is the discomfort that we feel when we notice contradictions between our own actions and beliefs. I'm looking at it in the context of politics. Um, but it's it's also part of a huge body of literature that's more generally um, in social psychology and in neuroscience and in other fields of psychology about how difficult it is for us to tolerate what we might call um, sort of like psychological discomfort. So it's not that, you know, we're a bit hot or cold physically. It's that, um, that we actually feel something like discomfort in our brain. And one of the main things that causes us this discomfort is not knowing and not understanding. Um, So for example, in in learning design, which is something I do in my professional life, where you design learning experiences for people, one of the main things that you're fighting against is that when people get frustrated because they don't understand something uh, right away, they often quit, right? Because it's uncomfortable. It's actually uncomfortable in your brain to say, I don't understand how to do this. it turns out that one of the best you know, ways of predicting whether people are going to eventually learn something is how well they can tolerate that discomfort, how well they can think, like, I don't understand this, but I'm going to try again. Um, similarly, we're very bad at dealing with ambiguity. That's another form of psychological discomfort where we, we just need to know what's going to happen or we really want to understand, you know, is this person good or bad? Um, but as psychologists as old as Melanie Klein have noticed, you know, most people are neither just good or bad, um, they're really complicated and there are things about them that are quite twisted and others that are incredibly lovely and gracious. And so, um... The ability to have mature relationships is also about this ability to just sit with the psychological discomfort of, like, this person is really complicated and confusing and it's ambiguous and I don't know what's going to happen and I'm going to proceed anyway. Now, I'm not that great at tolerating psychological discomfort. That's why it interests me. I, I struggle so much and I struggled a lot more a few years ago, I would say. I think something about my 30s mellowed me out a little bit and I can just survive a bit more of it. But I do think that for me this is one of the key skills— the sort of meta skills involved in, in living a meaningful life is tolerating this sort of low-level but very significant kind of discomfort that happens when we're trying to make sense of our lives.
2: It's very interesting because I think you, so much of the research I've come across and the people I've been lucky enough to talk to about meaning and happiness and finding that more rounded life that so many of us probably all of us really want, is this ability to be present and in that it is letting go of what the future is. But sitting, as you're saying, with that lack of knowledge and control and ambiguity, so many of us find it almost impossible. And again, yeah. I don't want to harp on about it too much, but it, this online world feels like it makes it more difficult. I know for me, sometimes when I'm sitting there and I've got a difficult thing at work to do or a difficult conversation I need to have, or just something I don't want to do, the first thing I do is I pick up my phone and I just start scrolling. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, it's the evening and I need to tidy up and I need to sort this out and I need to do these various bits of admin. And it's an hour and a half later and all I've done is watch videos of cats. And that's fine if it's what I wanted to do, but I didn't actually really want to do that. That wasn't a particularly pleasurable experience. Yeah. I just didn't want to do the things that made me feel uncomfortable or send that person that message or admit that I can't come, you know, take that thing out of my diary. Yeah, yeah. And I just wondered what you found are again, skills that people can work on because this area is what's out of our control, but are there skills that we can start to embody that make it easier?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, in particular with this kind of discomfort, I honestly think we just have to look at it as though it's some other kind of pain. Uh, you know, like if you have an injured foot or you're in labor, my friends have gone through labor, right? You're, there's lots of techniques that you use to manage the pain. It's not that you're experiencing it, but, you know, you might discover, OK, if I just count down from 10 or if I, uh, you know, distract myself as much as possible, or if I make everything else a little bit more comfortable so that when I uh, when my foot hurts, when I experience a contraction, then it's sort of bearable. whatever it is. It's about sort of knowing that the discomfort is there, but finding ways around it. And I think the same applies to this kind of physical discomfort. The reason the phone is soothing is because it it's a distraction, right? Um, it's a distraction. We associate it with calm. And I can actually scroll without even looking at the things, and I find it calming, uh, which I've done to show myself, like, this is how the phone works. It's a soothing device, like a child with a pacifier, right? Um so I try to find reasonable ways of tolerating discomfort. Like if I've got an email and I'm waiting for a response and I'm really uncomfortable about it, I will just either try to take myself completely away from the phone and be like, this is the hour where I'm cleaning my kitchen and going on a walk and the phone is in another room. Or if I can't do that, I will try to immerse myself in something that is like a treat, you know, like oh, I'm going to read through this new book or whatever. Um, so I'm constantly, I'm just managing the discomfort. And I think that's that's sort of living with the the of life anyway. Like something uncomfortable is happening over here and I'm still going to try to live over here in the meantime. And But yeah, any pain management technique works interestingly quite well for this kind of psychological discomfort. Distract, uh, make everything else a little bit nicer, you know, count down. Sometimes on a plane I'll just count down from 100 if there's turbulence. I just, I just count. Um, none of this is magic. It's just, it's just what we've got to hand as tools, isn't it? Absolutely. Someone once
2: told me if it takes one minute, just do it. You'll feel so much better. And yep. I've really tried to tattoo that on my mind. If it is, for example, turbulence or the email, cancelling something, whatever yeah. it is, giving people bad news, the admin washing, you know, the dishwasher, etc. just doing it. But in terms of thinking about that in the bigger sense of life. And obviously we've had that with COVID, but, you know, whenever you turn on the news, you've obviously got the kind of atrocities of the war in Ukraine going on, the nervousness of the Russia, kind of Western world conversation, um, you know, impending recession, all the extraordinarily terrifying events around us. And, And obviously we've just come through the pandemic as well and thinking about this, learning to live with the ambiguity of the world around us. How do we get comfortable with that? Because I know some of the things I you know people say, well, I just don't look at the news anymore because I find it yeah. too difficult. But it's a question for you because sometimes I wonder, is that too extreme? These things are happening around us, and to some extent, is it, it feels to me quite important to know about it. but how do you know about it without worrying all day, every day about things that may or may never happen?
1: Yeah, I think that's such a good question. And this is actually something I'm trying to work through in my research right now. But one of the things I found really comforting is that when you look at triggers for this kind of discomfort, it turns out that one of them is whether people feel like they have uh, what are in sort of jargon psychology language called affordances, whether they have action possibilities related to the thing they're trying to understand or close the ambiguity about. And that makes sense in a way, because if there's ambiguity, but there's nothing you can do about it, it's less pressing than if you actually might need to take a decision in the future and you don't know what's going on. And the the beautiful sort of inversion of this, if we can get to it, is that it might also be that we can we can sort of take a double approach. If there's something that we can truly do nothing about, maybe we can distance ourselves from it. But I think in a lot of cases, even with, let's say, war in another country... If we can find a way of looking at the ambiguity that points us to action possibilities, even if they're small, then it may become less painful to look at the news. Now, I'm not running some sort of giant psychological study, so hopefully someone else out there will. But the the point sort of logically looking at that kind of research is that we like to be the kinds of creatures who know what actions we might take next. And that matters, of course, in our personal lives. We don't want to have an ambiguous relationship with our parents, um because we want to know how to treat them. But it also matters sort of politically or socially, you might say, that it might be that we can tolerate a bit of the news about Russia and Ukraine if we feel like there's something we can do to help people in that context. And so I don't just think we need to sort of tolerate discomfort and, and, and live with the world as it is. In fact, I'm immensely persuaded that we need to radically change the world. But I think we have to uh, start by thinking about how to manage our discomfort so that we can then take action and it turns out if we take action we have a little bit less discomfort too so i think action is is essentially also a way of getting through this if we can find small possibilities to do something related to the news that we're taking in
2: i think that's that's very sensible and finding those i guess that relates to all three pieces Mm. of advice that you've shared it's finding those small skills whatever they are for you that allow you to kind of accept yourself as you are, accept the world as it is, but also give you a bit more kind of time and quiet and headspace to to focus on what what really matters for you. Hmm. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing all your very, very sage advice with us today. We so appreciate
1: it. Oh, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me and us at the School of Life.
2: So I hope you took a lot from what Sarah had to say. I think if I was going to summarise the one thing I wish everyone myself included would remember it's that it's not normal to succeed at everything nobody does no one will ever we all fail all the time and I think normalizing that is just absolutely essential no one's going to be the best at everything it is quite literally impossible maybe if you're Einstein it's different but for the rest of us mortals it's never going to happen so probably quit while we're ahead and just embrace the natural flaws of life and I think on that topic of embracing life a little bit more, we are going into Fact or Fad, where, as you know, every week, Dr. Gemma Newman and I put to the test various different wellness trends, things you might have seen on Instagram, maybe on TikTok, and we look at whether or not they've got a lot of basis in fact or maybe they're passing fad. And this week, we're going to be looking at the practice of daily gratitudes. They are something that's helped me no end. Can they make us all happier? Let's find out. So Gemma, I know I say this a lot, but I am really excited about this one because this is a practice that for me on an anecdotal level, has had a profound impact on my life, which is a practice of daily gratitudes or affirmations, however you want to describe it. And I did have a look at our hashtags. It's 36 million hashtags for gratitude and about 8 million for affirmations slash affirmations. So it's a popular topic.
0: Yeah, and understandably, I also feel that my bias will come into this one a lot because I have truly felt the power of just feeling grateful in my own life for the things that I have and the experiences that I have and making it an intentional thing I have found particularly useful because sometimes you can just sort of slip into patterns where you might start to think negatively, um, even when things are going well. So it's kind of one of those things that, yes, I do feel personally quite excited by. Mm. But when I look into sort of the research of it, I think what would be really helpful is just to kind of go back to an understanding of, well, what is it as a concept? And for me, um, I would sort of define it as an appreciation of what's valuable and meaningful. And it can also represent a state of thankfulness and appreciation. So kind of two things in one.
2: And you can do it in various different ways, can't you? You know, for me, I do it every night when I get into bed. I just do it by myself and I just sit there before I go to sleep. And I consciously go through three things that day that I feel grateful for. And sometimes they might be big things. Some days it's been a bad day. And they're tiny things like a good cup of coffee or the fact that my bed is warm and cozy and I'm really lucky to be in it. But just flipping my mindset to to find those things, I suddenly feel my body change and kind of soften and calm down and de-stress. It's unbelievable. But other people do it via a meditation or they write them down or they choose a kind of daily positive statement that they live by.
0: Yeah, and there's so many ways you can do it. I find that really interesting. And I, I kind of think about the example of, If you get a new car and then you haven't really noticed that brand of car around before, and then when you get that car, it's suddenly something that you notice a lot more. You think, oh, there it is. There it is again. And life's a bit like that. And gratitude practices are a bit like that. The more that you look for it, the more that you focus on it, then the more you notice it, which is Yeah, it's definitely a winner, I think, for most people's mental health and well-being. Uh, And then when you look at the science behind it, what's interesting is that there are studies to show that a gratitude practice is associated with increased well-being overall. And there was one study in particular where participants were divided into three groups. One group was asked to journal about negative events or hassles that came up. One was asked to have like a neutral life event sort of journal, and the other one was specifically asked to find things about which they were really grateful. And across the various study conditions, the gratitude subsample consistently had a higher well-being score in comparison with the other two groups. And there are other studies that have shown the same effect writing letters of gratitude to people in your life that may have gone otherwise unthanked um, or writing about your best possible future self is another thing that was studied and the effect that that might have on your mental health and well-being. What's interesting, though, is that not all studies showed exactly the same kind of results. So in people who had post-traumatic stress, like veterans, for example, in a war zone situation, the gratitude um, practice daily only benefited those who had had PTSD, whereas the ones who had not been specifically traumatized by events didn't notice any change in their well-being, which I find quite interesting. Mm -hmm. And there was a couple of studies, one on children and adolescents and one on divorced middle-aged women, showed that a gratitude visit or a gratitude letter didn't actually necessarily improve their overall well-being, which I think kind of speaks to the fact that it's not going to be a panacea, like it's not going to be the thing that fixes your life because life is hard and we all suffer in various ways. Death happens to everyone and so we're all going to experience that in terms of people that we love. Hard things happen but It's nice to see studies that show that when you specifically apply gratitude to your life circumstances, even when things are tough, that it can perhaps increase your overall resilience to stress. It can boost your general well-being and mood, which we know has potential benefits for lifespan and health overall. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, I certainly would, on an anecdotal level, second that in terms of that's how I see it in my life. I don't think it's that when life is stressful, the stress is really any different I think what it's enabled me to do certainly is on a difficult day I think sometimes you have in a moment where you can take stock and I find it easier to reframe my thinking and kind of shift the direction of the day than I did before it's not that I don't get stressed or overwhelmed or upset or worried or angry or any of those things it's just that I find it easier when I have a moment to sit down to then change my thinking because I find it a bit quicker, as you said, to notice, oh, no, that was good, or that was good, or that was good, or oh know you're thinking it's got a little bit more negative.
0: Yeah, and I think it's actually really easy for us to distort our thinking when things are going a bit wrong we can easily catastrophize and think that everything is going wrong and this is a bad day and this is my luck. And then I don't know if anyone else out there listening has the same experience, but then when you start on that sort of negative train, then every stop after that on the day kind of just seems to get worse and worse. So if you flip that conscientiously, purposefully, then it can sort of, you know, really make a huge difference. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. So Gemma, what do you think? Fact or fad? I think it's definitely a fact, but that we don't have lots of data to show. It's a burgeoning area of research. And I think actually in this instance, you don't necessarily need a huge body of data to say that you want to give it a try. It's free, it's easy, it has no downsides. So yeah, I think it's something that anyone can try and see if it works for them. I totally
2: agree, because I think... In this section, in looking at this, I know what we're both passionate about and a lot of people in the space are passionate about is dispelling some of the myths because some of the myths that we've looked at, say, celery juice can be great if you enjoy it. But also it's not a cheap habit and it you know, takes some time. And, and I think it's quite clear there isn't any kind of empirical evidence behind it. So I think cutting through that is important. Likewise, on some supplements, et cetera, you know, it can be very expensive for people. So I think cutting through, that's important. Whereas I think on something like this, as you said, it's free. It costs you one minute of your daily time, maybe two minutes. It's a lovely thing to do and you may feel benefit from it. So to me, it's quite symbolic of the fact that there are lots of examples of trends or practices or tools that we might do where we don't necessarily need empirical evidence around them ultimately if it feels good it's free there are no negatives to doing
0: it it's just whether it personally works for you or not yeah I agree and in fact it would be a lovely thing to finish on if we could ask our listeners to actually just think of one thing one thing today so far that they feel grateful for even if they feel as though it's been a bad day in other ways is there one thing today that you can feel really grateful for and if you've got that thing in your mind, say it to yourself. And then you know you've done your gratitude practice for the day. Is there one for you today, Gemma? I'm recording with you, Ella. Of
1: course.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Too kind.
2: You know what? It's a really interesting example because I have had quite a bad day, I would call it. I haven't had a great week. And I've been feeling quite stressed. And as soon as you said that, I found my one thing. I took Sky, my older daughter to nursery today and we were on the bus together I love going on the bus though she loves to go upstairs so she can look out from the double decker and we just had I don't know it's probably like five or six minutes together and it was just bliss absolutely bliss just talking about what she was going to do with her day and what her teachers were talking about yesterday and just how happy she was to be back with them and it just it's amazing isn't it because I was quite caught up in it being a bad day and I suddenly feel very calm good it works it works it works (laughs) oh what an episode I feel like these episodes on self-development and our relationship with ourselves for me personally are very powerful and I just feel very grateful that I get to do this week in week out because I I learn a lot that I take into my own life and I hope you feel as you listen along with me that you're getting the same thing into your life um but do let us know do let us know what else you'd like to see as always please do get in touch rate it, review it, share it with your friends, let us know what you really think. You can email us podcast at deliciouslyella.com or on social at deliciouslyella. And just remember, if you're making any big changes to your life, do consult your doctor. Next week, we've got a big episode coming up. I'm going to be joined by self-development coach. And as she's been referred to numerous times, the queen of manifesting. Basically, helping you live your best life roxy Nafusi. and then in fact or fad we're going to be looking at adaptogenic mushrooms are they really the answer to lowering stress in your body it's a very juicy episode i cannot wait to see you back here next week thank you so much for listening and again big thank you to curly media who are partners in producing this show